Hi there, Liam. How are you doing? Hi, Julia. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing all right. Thanks so much for joining me today. I've been wanting to do this one for a while because I know that you're doing a lot of fun research. And I've met you through these international energy agency annexes uh, like almost 10 years ago now. So I'm excited to get into that as well. But before we launch into all of that, I was curious if you could introduce yourself and kind of your background and what you've been up to lately. For sure. Yeah. So my name is Liam O'Brien. I've been a professor or assistant or associate professor since 2011. And I, I teach in a civil engineering department, but my focus is really on, on buildings, which traditionally doesn't have much of a home in any of the engineering disciplines because it kind of lies somewhere between architecture and civil engineering and mechanical engineering. So, so that's me, but, um, before that, I, I did a couple of degrees in aerospace engineering, and it took me six years to realize that wasn't quite for me. And so finally, I found this program called Building Engineering, and I did a PhD in that. And the rest is, is history. I had no idea your background was in aerospace engineering. I I saw that earlier when I was prepping for this. I was like, what? <laughs> I, was, I wasn't prepped for that. It's not such a stretch because um, in aerospace, we learn well, a lot of heat transfer and things that apply to, to buildings and, and energy and power and things like that. But the other thing is a lot of it's focused on systems level engineering and understanding how all these different engineered and design systems work together. So in that sense, it, it's very similar to buildings. Awesome. So you are currently in Ottawa, correct? Correct. Capital of Canada. Yeah. And so what university and department are you in? Yeah, of course. So I'm in, uh, I'm at a university called Carleton University and the department is civil and environmental engineering. And one day I hope it's, uh, the, the buildings are included in that name, <laughs> but for now civil and environmental engineering. Yeah. You could get an extra long acronym that way, right? If you exactly. add it in there. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, there at Carleton, um, which I've been to once before, and it's beautiful, uh, you have a lab there, Human Buildings Interaction Lab, I believe. Can mm -hmm. you talk a little bit about how that started and kind of what your big picture goals were when you first started that whole endeavor? Yeah, so very late in my PhD, I realized that I was specifying all sorts of technical things related to homes like thermostat set points and ventilation rates and insulation levels. But I realized that the behavior piece has as much influence as all those other things in many cases. And then I started to realize that not many people around the world, at least engineers, are focused on the, the human behavior aspect of buildings. So my, my transition to this area of, of occupant behavior was pretty natural in that it was a combination of realizing there's a gap and getting kind of passionate about the topic, to be honest, when I when I was presenting this stuff, it seemed really exciting to talk about all the weird things that people do in buildings, but then realizing that those kind of weird, unexpected things shouldn't be unexpected. You know, design has a lot of influence on the way people behave. And so that's what got me excited in this topic. Yeah, um, I'm I'm with you on that. 
and, and so just to answer your question finally, um, I, I formed a lab called the Human Building Interaction Lab to sort of formalize that and make my place uh, in, in research, both at my university and, and more broadly. Yeah, I love how excited you do get about this topic. And it's something I get excited about too. So I naturally, we've kind of gravitated to each other in, in the research world. One thing I've noticed over the years, though, is different research groups, different countries, different disciplines, for sure, kind of use that term occupant behavior differently. How do you personally like define that in the research world? Right. So, I mean, people do all sorts of things in, in buildings. You know, some are related to their, their tasks or their, their role in the building, whether it's sleeping, eating, doing work, et cetera. I'm really focused on the behaviors that affect either energy use or the comfort of people, or maybe slightly more broadly, indoor environmental quality. Because some of the behaviors we engage in affect others. So it's not, not just how it affects an individual, but how it affects other people as well. And again, I'm probably you know not fully trained to look at this, but I think it's really interesting to understand how one person behavior, one person's behavior affects others and how we might be concerned that we'll annoy other people. And so we sort of constrain our behavior at the cost of our own comfort. So these sorts of subtle things and, and interactions, not just between people and buildings, but between people are really important for building performance. Yeah, I, I agree. And I asked that question because it dawned on me during one of our meetings a few years ago that when I was saying occupant behavior, I was very much looking at it through that lens. And the person I was talking to was talking about occupant behavior in terms of like a, a schedule during the day, like, well, people are in the building or they're not in the building. And then they plug that into a simulation. And then that's their quote, occupant behavior, which to me, I'm like, but but you're not talking about how they behave or what they do. Or, I mean, you and I have both seen some some crazy things along the way. We got a chance to write a paper together, kind of highlighting some of those stories. What's what's some of the craziest stuff you've seen in buildings that people do to kind of reclaim their space and their comfort? Oh, goodness. <laughs> I mean, so so very broadly, the maybe the most surprising thing you see is people overriding systems and sort of good design intentions. So whether it's, you know, jamming windows open in the winter, covering up motion sensors, trying to fool temperature sensors or, or thermostats by, you know, blowing hot air at them so that the thermostat thinks that things are warmer or, or colder than reality, all those sorts of things. The other common thing you see is blocking uh, diffusers. So people don't like to feel the draft from, from diffusers, so they just cover them up. But I think, again, in a lot of cases, you can look at these things and you could either blame the occupant or you could ask yourself, why is the occupant doing that? And how might this building have been designed or operated differently? Yeah, I... I wonder um, through your lab right now, what kinds of projects are you and your students working on that start to tackle those kinds of problems and questions? 
So one of the biggest projects I have going on right now, it's it's a couple of years in, is looking at telework. And a year before COVID started, I, I, I got funded to look at telework. And what I was interested in was to try to quantify whether telework actually saves energy and reduces uh, greenhouse gas emissions on a broader scale. Because often the benefits are touted, like people are not commuting and maybe we don't need as much office space. So these are all probably good things from an environmental perspective. But I wanted to see how short and long-term decisions were being affected by this. So for example, we've seen a lot of people who have relocated, they've moved farther away from, from the city and from their work to more car-dependent neighborhoods. They purchased a vehicle or more vehicles. They purchased a larger home. They may have purchased air conditioning at home. They, uh, you know, they do all sorts of things that end up using a lot of energy. And what I was really interested to see is whether they're actually using more energy than they were uh, before they started teleworking. Yeah. What what a cool yeah. time to have that experiment. Like you predicted something epically huge happening. I, I know that was that was pure luck. But it's great because we've been able to, well, we've had a, a quasi-natural experiment. I don't think we can call it uh, fully natural. But the other thing is that there's a lot of policy questions arising, like we're working with the federal government and they want to know what should they be doing, not just from a productivity perspective, but also from an environmental perspective. And I think the jury's somewhat out on this topic. It's extremely complicated. Yeah. So what, what kind of things are you finding that you're able to share? Yeah. So, I mean, a, a lot of my predictions came true, I, I would <laughs> say, in that it's it's not clear cut. There's a lot of energy that's that's sort of uh, being used that, that wasn't happening before. Like I said, people relocated. Like even if I look at my own household, I bought air conditioning. Whereas before I could tolerate the hottest days with fans, now that I'm working at home a lot, I, I just couldn't get by with fans alone. And so I bought air conditioning. Right. Well, now that, now that air conditioning is in my house, you know, I'm, I'm not going to suffer on those days that are like, you know, a pretty warm, but, you know, I could have gotten through without air conditioning before. Right. Um, so there's all these, these sort of uh, shifts that are happening that are bringing on all sorts of additional unexpected energy use. Yeah. And there's all these creature comforts too, that I think I'll admit I uh, bought a wine fridge, <laughs> I bought an espresso machine. I bought stuff I really didn't need but the world was falling apart and it seemed like a great idea at the time right like i think absolutely um, yeah so i mean i've seen studies that talk about how emissions like from from cars have gone down in some cases but like you said if people are moving further out and then they have to go a longer distance to just get to the grocery store or something plus we have all these delivery services now and there's like constant cars going around with it Instacart and things like that, that I I think you're right, it's super complicated. And then we don't really might go down in one area, but not in the other. Sure. Mm -hmm. And and most people assume that office energy use would have gone down by, you know, 90% during COVID when, when offices were um, vacated, but that's just not the case. Most 
buildings will report something like 20 or 30% savings at most. And in a lot of buildings, they have to boost the ventilation rate to avoid spread of, of COVID. So I, I think what's interesting about this is we knew this was a problem. And even before COVID, our buildings were not occupied to the extent that um, building codes, for example, would assume and design guidelines would assume. And so some of our work, even at the international level, looks at how building codes might influence design. And our findings there were that when you assume buildings are fully occupied or office buildings, let's say are fully occupied, there's no incentive or thought about putting in technologies that adapt to partial occupancy because that's just not a scenario that's looked at during the design process. We always design for worst case scenarios and not these partial occupancy scenarios. Yeah, that's a good point. I'm wondering, of all the other projects that you're doing, it can be totally different than the one you just mentioned or or not, but what what's something else you're working on that you're really excited about? So another project of that sort of same scale is focused on MERPs. And I'm not sure if you use this term, but basically uh, multi-unit residential buildings. So it's, it's the term we use in Canada. It's a, a catch-all for everything other than detached houses. So, so gotcha. townhomes, apartments, um, you know, mid-rises, high-rises, mm-hmm. et cetera. And at, at least in Canada, and I suspect to some extent in the U.S., this is a, a dominant new housing form. Um, finally, we're recognizing that you know, detached houses and sprawl are very problematic from an environmental perspective. They have a place, but not in the middle of cities, which is how a lot of uh, zoning has kind of led to, to fairly sprawling cities. Right. And whether it's building codes or, or government research or, or general, in general research programs have not really looked at this housing form nearly as much as detached houses. And so I have a big project with a colleague at the University of Toronto, Marianne Tushi, where we're looking at all different aspects of, of MERMS, multi-unit residential buildings. Comfort, things like noise transmission through walls. One of the reasons people don't tend to want to live in apartment buildings is the noise or the uh, you know the fumes, either people are cooking food or smoking. So there's a lot of transmission of, of unpleasant things through doors, under, under doors, et cetera. Um, but we're also looking at um, life cycle analysis of these different building types, not just the materials going into the buildings, but looking at the entire lifestyle associated with where you live. Um, so where you live and what type of home you live in is likely to influence how you get around, you know, maybe where you work, where you do your shopping, et cetera. So there's really broad implications on that fairly simple decision. And meanwhile, your your housing form affects how much infrastructure you use. So if you're in a detached house, you're probably using more infrastructure, whether it's parking spots, roads, sewage lines electrical systems, you know, you name it, you're probably using more resources and that's generally not captured. So, so those are the sorts of questions we're trying to tackle in that program or, or uh, project. So are you doing interviews and surveys and, and things like that to understand people's behaviors and maybe why they chose to live in that kind of 
building type. I have I have not heard that acronym, by the way, and I'm loving it. <laughs> okay. You know, we're not doing that specifically in the project, but it, it is a good question. And I, unfortunately, I think a major reason why people are choosing in such housing is uh, economics. Right. But typically, at least in Canada, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can say it's the same in the U.S., certain housing forms are more, more subsidized than others, and, and that may lead to living in detached houses just because we tend to subsidize personal vehicles and, and the associated infrastructure heavily. And we don't necessarily value walkable communities as much as we should. So we're very much interested in like the, the Canadian dream or the American dream and, and looking at how can we reimagine that? Because traditionally that's a detached house with a big yard and, you know, a family and, and pets and all that stuff. And while that's great, it's just not all that sustainable for uh, at least in cities. And the result is, you know, larger sprawling cities that really affect distances between homes and amenities and so on. It's just not a sustainable life form, essentially. Right. It's hard too, because once you have that experience, it's it's kind of hard to want to go back. Sort of like your example of getting AC when you started working from home and now your behavior changed in that way. I'm one of those people that doesn't like noise from neighbors because <laughs> I lived on way too many first level apartments through college and being in a space where you don't hear other people is really nice. So then, like you said, that goes into all these ideas of design wise, like how could we make that better so that that impact isn't there? Yeah. Awesome. Absolutely. I mean, ironically, a lot of the noise in cities comes from cars from, you know, not, not to place blame, but a lot of it's from suburbanites driving into cities and then cities are noisy. And then the, the people living in the cities deal with the noise, uh, but they're not necessarily the ones creating it. But but just to give an idea of one of the, the benefits of multi-unit residential buildings, you can share some amenities that you would never have on your own, whether it be, you know, community spaces, or maybe, you know, your building has a few rooms that can be borrowed occasionally, so you can have a huge party and the average person probably couldn't afford that party room, but if you have access to it, just when you need to host a hundred people, suddenly you can do that because it's a, a shared resource or, you know, swimming pools, yeah. you know, you name it. So there are a lot of benefits and we're trying to realize those with our projects. Yeah. It's interesting too. I've been reading lately about kind of this idea of community and social connection and how that's pretty important for people's lifespans, rates of depression, anxiety, all of that, which it's on one hand kind of funny because we just went through this whole COVID era where a lot of people were isolated. And I, I don't know about you and kind of your experience, but I've met with people and myself, I've had a really hard time going back in person and I was already quite introverted and now I'm like extra introverted. And so we know from research that's been done on health, that having those connections is super important and kind of having those shared community spaces and even the multi-generational aspect of that, like older adults all the way down to kids and having those generations mix is very beneficial, but it's hard. It's hard to want to do that when you're used to now being alone for a lot of people. 
So it's kind of an interesting thing that just popped in my head when you're looking at that sort of relates to your other project as well. Absolutely. And, and I think we're starting to recognize that urban design and, and building design affects our personal connections way more than we could have expected. And if we're not going into work every day or, or not very regularly, the sort of the, the neighborhoods uh, relationships that we form can be really important. Yeah. Um, and there is research that, that we need more that looks at, you know, how to make neighborhoods more friendly and, and sociable and so on. I, I guess there's probably a fine line if you cram people too close together, that can have its consequences. <laughs> yeah. um, but if people are having to yell across the road because it's so wide and there's traffic, that's also problematic. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so any any other projects that you want to highlight that you've worked on? Maybe the last thing I'll talk about is is looking at building interfaces. Mm -hmm. And I know you you work on this as well, uh, but we're some of the only people that, that work on this really <laughs> important topic. Yeah. So my elevator pitch for this topic would be that many consumer products are tested rigorously using methods from ergonomics and industrial design, but somehow that hasn't really made it into the building industry very much. And part of the reason for that is that buildings are, are usually designed as a one-of-a-kind. And so we just don't have that iterative approach involving human testing and then, you know, continuous improvement of products. And, and you know, because buildings are one of a kind, it's just harder to invest that level of user testing in. But the result is that our buildings are not that usable. So, you know, products or, or interfaces are less intuitive. People don't know how to use them. They misuse them. They get frustrated. They might cope with a bad situation rather than you know being able to use it properly they may as i said earlier override systems or do extreme things like open windows plug in space heaters when it's the summer and air conditioning's on it's etc um, so what i've tried to do is marry these fields of uh, human factors engineering and, and building engineering and this is a fairly untouched topic but it's, it's really exciting to apply the methods. For example, there's a method called Think Aloud, where you ask someone to perform a task with an interface, let's say a thermostat or a light switch, and then they vocalize their thought process. And you can learn so much about uh, how people are using it and some of the misconceptions they might have. Yeah. For example, they, they crank their thermostat set point because they believe that that's going to make the temperature respond more quickly, kind of like hitting the gas to speed up your car. But in reality, that's not usually the case. That, well, you already know that I like this topic <laughs> for sure. Mm -hmm. But yeah, the think aloud protocol, that's, I actually haven't done that before, but that's really interesting. I bet you get all kinds of good information from people just saying that that's, that's a cool way to look at it. I like that. It was funny. I was talking to a colleague the other day and well, she was saying the test for interfaces should be, could a two-year-old use it or not? And if a two-year-old can go up and turn on the light and flip the switch and the lights come on, then it's a su successful interface. My, my opinion on that is maybe we should lower it to 18 months because <laughs> my 19-month-old 
is like far beyond what I can do on my cell phone at this point. And then she did like a quick up and down switch on the light switch the other day. And all of a sudden our LED light started changing into different colors. And I didn't even know that it does that. So maybe, <laughs> Amazing. maybe, maybe we should like lower that threshold a little bit, but it's, there's a lot to be said for the simplicity of an interface and like the level of, you know, if you have to have a piece of paper taped on the wall next to it to explain how to use it, then it's probably not the best design for an interface. Exactly. And there's great research out of uh, Lawrence Berkeley National Lab. They call that folk labeling, where someone has mm -hmm. to make a sign or a note or label an interface in some other way to explain how to use it. And they, like I think both of us would argue that that's not a good sign if, if <laughs> this extra labeling is required. Yeah. Uh, that, that means it's too complicated. Yeah. I think Philip, who's part of our annex group that we'll talk about here in just a minute, he is at Virginia Tech and he's doing some work looking at different characteristics of thermostats in particular and like are they too busy? Are they too crowded? What's the font like? Um, is there enough contrast between things? And we we found in one of our studies that we were doing that we were actually looking at assisted living facilities and older adults. And we found that people were really uncomfortable and some of them understood how the thermostat worked, but they couldn't actually use it because they couldn't see the numbers. The numbers were too small and there wasn't enough contrast for their aging eyes. And so just stuff like that, when we think about how to design not only the actual interface, but the placement of it and um, all of those other factors. I mean, I think we're kind of pulling a thread through this whole thing. Maybe uh, what we're, the behaviors are going to depend on all of that, right? And if people are just going to suffer because they can't actually interact with their building, then then what's the point? I mean, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you bring up a good point that there's very little standardization of <laughs> color, font, icons, etc. So other fields have some standardization. And I like to give the example of cars. They have the, the gas pedal and the, the brake pedal. And we don't switch those around because that would be a disaster. But meanwhile, in thermostats, there, you know, you see every shape and color and, and language, and then it, there's just no standardization. And I think we become most aware of this as a problem if we go in an unfamiliar space, like a new hotel room, where it's really difficult to figure out how to use some of these systems. They're just not intuitive. Yeah, definitely. Especially if you have to have the folk labeling next to them and it's in a different language. I struggled with that this summer. <laughs> I had no idea what it meant. Yeah. Exactly. And then often there's signage saying, don't use this, you know, the, the building manager or whatever doesn't want you to use it. Well, who are they to tell us that we can't <laughs> improve our comfort? You know, especially if you're paying big dollars for a, a hotel room. Yeah, exactly. There's just, there's so much work to do in this area. And so I think that actually might be a good segue into this, this, um, IEA Annex or International Energy Agency Annex. Um, I think we met in Annex 66 and then yeah. uh, you co-led Annex 79. So can you explain a little bit about like what the heck is an annex? <laughs> sure. So, so the International Energy Agency sort of sponsors or maybe organizes structures 
quite a few projects, and these are under something called TCPs. Long story short, there's a, a TCP, in other words, sort of a, a category of research projects under this, this category called the uh, Energy and Buildings and Communities. And at any given time, there's about 10 projects going on. And each of these projects lasts five years. And you and I are part of something called NX79, which is one of those projects. It's finishing this year in 2023, and it's called Occupant-Centric Building Design and Operation. And this project involves about 100 researchers from, I think it's 23 countries at the last count, yeah, um, all over the place, Asia, Europe, North America, South America, Australia. So um, we, we're covering almost all of the, the continents. Yeah. And this consists of all sorts of different researchers from different fields, engineering, architecture, psychology, sociology, computer science, probably some other fields I'm, I'm missing. But we're generally trying to tackle this problem of understanding how people behave in buildings and how we can improve uh, building design, but also controls to simultaneously improve occupant comfort and satisfaction and reduce energies. So that, that's in, in a nutshell. <laughs> that was a really good good overview. I, how did you get involved in these? So during my PhD, I had the privilege of being involved in a previous annex called uh, Annex 52. So now we're at 79, and probably the next one will be 100 or so. And I realized during my PhD that it's just an amazing opportunity to work with leading researchers from around the world. For instance, I, I, I realized as a Canadian that our European counterparts are way ahead of us when it comes to um, some building codes and construction practice and just sort of the pride in new buildings. Um, so that international exposure was incredible. And as things went, I, I sort of took on some more leadership roles and then finally 10 years later or so, I decided to co-lead this current annex with uh, a German colleague, Andreas Wagner. I, I'd have to say this group, it's just, it's been one of the coolest things I've done in my professional career. We get a chance, like you said, to meet these experts all over the world and see and experience new places. We've toured all kinds of labs and facilities and it's it's really awesome how so like we currently in our in annex 79 had four different subtasks and then there's different kind of focal points for each one and so it was great to be able to really like hone in on a specific issue so one of the ones that I was involved in was about building interfaces and then you get to understand like what different countries are doing for that particular issue or if they are at all uh, so it's just, it's such a cool experience. And if people don't know about them, they should definitely go check it out. There's the EBC IEA website has all kinds of good stuff to go check out with all the different topics. Have you been involved in any others besides uh, 52, 66, and 79? That's it. But just to, to give people an idea of other topics, there's district energy systems, resilience, natural ventilation data-driven kind of building controls. The first one I was involved in was on net zero energy buildings. 
So the, the common themes are, are energy and buildings and, and communities. But beyond that, they tend to, each project has its own focus. Ours is one of the broader ones, probably, believe it or not, just the idea of the intersection between people and buildings. Mm -hmm. That has attracted a huge group. Um, huge. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the biggest meeting that we've had was almost 200 people. Yeah. Um, and I, I think that's a testament to how important the topic is and just the, the recognition that this is a, a hot topic and rightfully so, because it's, it's ripe with opportunity to improve a sort of mediocre status quo. Yeah, definitely. So what do you think, if somebody wanted to get involved in an annex, how would they go about that, do you think? So the best way would be to look at the International Energy Agency Energy and Buildings and Communities website and look at the active projects and then see who's leading it and reach out to that person. Now, technically, every country sort of needs to sign on to the, the EBC and, and support the project. But it's just a matter of, of talking to the right people and they would be listed on each project website. But it, it's a voluntary effort and I'm not paid to lead, let alone contribute as a right. researcher. But at the same time, that kind of gives some flexibility. You know, you're not uh, you're not reporting to someone every activity you do at, at every month. And that means in general, we can work on more fundamental or, or blue sky thinking. And for that reason, I find it really enjoyable. You know, we can we can challenge the status quo in ways that traditional funding programs might not allow. Yeah, it, it is nice not to have those extra barriers for sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Let's see. I'm I'm thinking what we'll probably do is we usually have a companion document that it goes with this podcast. So I'll just make sure I put in all the links to those resources you just mentioned. And that way, if somebody's interested, they'll, they'll have that right there. So next thing I was going to ask you about is one of the bigger projects that you and the team took on for this last annex was a book about occupant-centric design. And I'm mm -hmm. wondering if you could talk a little bit big picture about that book and kind of um, some of the key topics and hot topics that were in there and maybe why it's important. Sure. Yeah, so one of the big outcomes of Annex 79, and there are many, but I can speak to the this book we wrote because I, I was a co-editor for it. The book is all about occupant-centric building design. And the premise is that in general, we don't really incorporate occupants into the building design process as well as I think we should. And there's some good reasons for that. Like often we don't know who's going to occupy a building, but the result has been excuses that if we, we don't know who's moving into a building or who will occupy a building in one way or another, be it a, you know, an office occupant, an employee, or a homeowner or something like that, then let's just make a very generic building that's a one size fits all approach. And we wanted to argue in this book that there's better ways of doing things through the entire design process. So there's better ways of talking to people to understand needs. And there's so many ways to do this. We could interview them, we could have meetings, we could sketch different ideas with them, we could put them in a virtual environment to see if they like the way things look and, and you know the flow works well. 
There's a lot of other good ways to do this, that we can observe how people are behaving and then take those learnings and, and apply them. So for example, you know, how people are moving within spaces, how they're interacting with uh, light switches, et cetera. We can look at occupant behavior from existing buildings and apply that and so on. In the book, we also focus a lot on simulation. So how can you model people better to not perfectly predict, but at least predict a range of possible behaviors and the corresponding energy use? So for instance, if we assume that people are passive receivers of, of indoor environments, so they just kind of accept certain conditions and don't react to certain designs and certain conditions, then you'll get a very different design outcome versus if we acknowledge and embrace the idea that people do interact with buildings. So we wanted to demonstrate in a simulation environment that yes, design impacts behavior. And believe it or not, that's just not something that's done in current practice. Current practice is basically assume these things about occupants and see how the building performs. And the building code is largely to blame for that. Most building codes do not allow you to assume good things about occupants. We, we assume right. that occupants cannot be influenced. Um, <laughs> and so it's, as simple as it sounds, it's a paradigm shift to go to this model where people impacts buildings and building design impacts people. Yeah. And the last, there's many other parts of the book, but, but the last thing maybe worth highlighting is that we took all the theory and we applied it to some case studies. So recognizing that theory might work well from an academic perspective, but maybe not in reality, we wanted to demonstrate that these methods work in reality. There's a set of case studies where the theory is put into practice quite successfully in my view. Yeah, I would agree with that. And then mm -hmm. I'm, I can also um, pop the link in for the book as well, because it's, it's all open source, right? Exactly. The book yeah. is free. We, we spent a, a pretty penny on that, um, <laughs> but, but it, it's a testament to how important it is to us, all the contributors, including you, Julia, that this stuff gets out there and has an impact. We don't want it to be locked away in university libraries. We really want um, practitioners to benefit from the book. Yeah, definitely. I uh, I think that was a good move for sure. So I have a question that's that I didn't intend to tie this all together in this way, but it's the way that you've approached all of this It kind of just ties it all up in a nice little bow. I was wondering if you could talk about, like if somebody's listening, um, let's maybe take think about this on from two different perspectives. So like the design perspective and then the perspective of the actual occupant. I'm wondering what would your advice be to practitioners out there for what's the best thing that they could do to ensure that the building is not using an insane amount of energy, but also that occupants are happy and healthy and comfortable. For sure. I'm a big believer in passive measures, and I know artificial intelligence and advanced controls are really hot, but the fundamentals that applied in the 1970s and, and earlier, to be honest, maybe hundreds of years ago when we didn't have all this technology, still apply today. So, so basic things like building form and insulation and thermal mass and appropriately sized windows are all really important. Especially in the context of resilience and, and power outages, I think this is something yeah. that's 
facing us more and more. And technology is, in many cases, not going to help us in those situations. But yeah. in general, a building that performs well in a power outage is going to be low energy during regular circumstances. But on, on top of that, we need to keep our buildings pretty simple because not only do occupants often know how to not know how to use complex buildings, but the operators don't either. So there's a big mismatch between design intent and, and reality. But the last thing I'll mention is the importance of giving adaptive opportunities to people. We need to be a bit more trusting of people. And this means things like windows that open, light switches that don't have a high degree of automation, ceiling fans. I mean, that's not an original idea, but um, <laughs> at least where I come from, it is very rare to see a ceiling fan in anywhere other than your your home or maybe your 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 country house or something like that. And I think that's because we have air conditioning. So why give ceiling fans when we have air conditioning? Well, you can cool people a lot more efficiently with moving air than cold air. Right. So a back to basics kind of approach where it, it does seem like the last several years we've forgotten how to actively participate in our buildings. I see people just sit there and suffer without really thinking about going over and even opening a window. So it's, I would say, like you said, on the design side, it's very much keeping things simple and less automated, which I totally agree with. And on the occupant side, it's having people kind of have, they have to relearn how to be active occupants in passive buildings. Exactly. And it can't be understated or overstated, understated. Either way, um, <laughs> the, the impact of the impact of people is really high. And and some people like to minimize this, but all of our research has shown that the occupant can affect energy use by a factor of 10 or so. In, in our telework study, we found this, we measured people and their energy use for a year. And the difference between me and the biggest energy user was about a factor of 10. So we get really excited about five or 10% energy savings through you know, better windows and insulation and things like that. But, and those things are important, they're fundamental, but uh, occupant behavior is also really important. Yeah. Well, hey, Liam, I wanna thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's good to reconnect. I haven't, I haven't seen you in a few months. <laughs> Thanks, Julia. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, Thanks thank you. Having. I love it when you call me soon.